All right, you can turn to Romans 3 if you want to put your finger there. I'm going to read 3.19 and then James 2.10, um, but you can flip there. Um, calling this guilt giveaway, week two of reconstructing the heart, trying to understand a theology of emotion. And uh, I'm definitely convinced that um, it's not that we are too emotional in a lot of ways. I think by and large, we're not emotional enough or emotional in the right ways. Um, especially when we consider matters of injustice and things like that. So, but I want to deal with guilt. So, and the, guilt especially being um, how it's tied to the law of God, as we'll see. But Romans 3.19, I'll read that, and, Roman, er, and then James 2.10. So Romans 3.19, um, these are the words of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. And then James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Let's pray. Our Father and good God, we are thankful for your word, we are grateful for your spirit, and we are eager to be sanctified. We ask and pray that you would do the miracle of holiness in us so that we can be better equipped for the work of ministry. May we reconstruct, may we deconstruct, and may we do it all through the blood-bought atonement and forgiveness of your son Jesus. It's in his name I pray, amen. So the great problem that besets all men, the supremely exasperating complication that leaves man completely beleaguered and confused in all of his existence and all of his toiling and all of his work, is the search for somewhere to place his guilt. From the very start, man, we know, was plagued with the feelings of guilt, but long before the feelings came was the objective reality. Man has sinned against God. Man has sinned against God. When Adam and Eve, they chose to break covenant with God, they did so because there was this temptation that was set before them. And the temptation was the desire and temptation of autonomy. Self-law, right? To know and determine good and evil, Genesis 3.5. They wanted to govern themselves on their own terms. Once the heart's desires are set in motion, the mind comes along to reason its justification. So your heart desires, your mind justifies that desire. And then, of course, uh, we have this downward spiral, spiral towards sin. So what the heart longs for The mind will declare righteous and good, and what the emotions crave, the will sees to it that it comes to pass. That's the process of how we function as God's creatures. This cycle of what we can call self-determination basically brought havoc to the soul of a man. It brought havoc to the soul of all men and all women, and of course, it was destruction to the created order. So as Genesis 3, John read it, as it clearly articulates, The entirety of our being has been tainted and cracked, polluted by sin. So like like our minds, our emotional state can be affected by sin too. Remember last week, whole body, whole gospel. You are a whole person made in the image of God. Um, Because of our sin, it's cracked and polluted, but you're still a whole person. So a byproduct of this, what we can call Genesis 3, high-handed covenantal apostasy, and that self-destruction, the byproduct of that rebellion is what we call guilt. 
the eyes of Adam and Eve were open. They knew that they were naked and they felt shame. They felt guilt. They felt something they had never felt before, which led them, of course, to hide from the Lord. Guilt, in other words, makes us run. Guilt makes us run. Guilt, then, is paired with God's law because when God's law is violated, guilt, of course, is the necessary outcome. So <clears throat> let me just give you a working definition of guilt. And, and I just sort of made this up on, on, on the fly. So <laughs> I, think, I think it's right. Um, guilt is the covenantal state of transgressing the law of God which brings about feelings of insecurity and conviction due to a forsaking of responsibility and obedience to God. I'll say it again. Guilt is this covenantal state. All right, I'm going to use the word covenant a few times. It's connected to that. It's the covenantal state of transgressing the law of God, which brings about, there's repercussions, right? It brings about feelings of insecurity, feelings of conviction, due to a forsaking of the responsibility you had before God and the responsibility of obedience to God. So notice how James 2.10 frames it. When we break one law, we're guilty of breaking them all. Right? If you keep the whole of the law of God, and yet you break one thing, the most itty-bitty thing in our eyes, James says you are guilty of breaking them all. There's a reason for that. You can't transgress the holiness of God and not incur guilt. So one violation means wholesale violation altogether. Romans 3.19, as we read, spells it out again. Whatever the law says, we know that it speaks to those who are under the law um, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth has to be closed, God says. There, there is nothing that the unbeliever, the unregenerate, the person who you may be in conversation with can say that is any legitimately can legitimately be used in the courtroom of God. It can't be used. There's nothing. The whole mouths of all men are shut. And the reason is so that the world may become guilty, Paul says, before God. Now, <clears throat> because sin, by definition, is the transgression of the law of God, note that. That's an incredibly freeing thing. Um, I think David Chilton um, said this in one of his uh, lectures on the uh, megalomania, uh, ecclesio um, the ecclesiology sermon he did. Um, it's freeing that sin is the transgression of the law of God. That's 1 John 3, 4. And it's not the transgression of the feelings or arbitrary standards set up by men. Okay. Now, because of that, we can conclude then that guilt which comes from the transgression, is also objective, actual, and it's defined like the law of God is objective and actual and defined. So, <clears throat> um, <laughs> you will get this in conversations with people. Um, almost every time I've ever talked to anybody at George Mason, uh, the arbitrary standards of men the guilt that they receive from the law of God is unmanageable. So they have to concoct something else in order to relieve their guilt. Now, accompanying the law of God are the consequences of the law of God. Okay? It's objective, but there's something with it. 
and guilt and shame are at the forefront. With the law of God comes guilt and shame. When you break it, there's guilt, there's um, transgression, there's shame, there's feelings of those things. So guilt, then, we can say, guilt presupposes responsibility, and responsibility presupposes objectivity. Let me just say it simply. Because guilt exists, there's something above guilt. And what's above guilt is a responsibility to God. And what's above the responsibility to God is God. That's the train of thought. So what God intends is for sin to have real-time repercussions in history. So because of sin, our mouths are closed, right? What can we possibly say? Nothing, right? And we are thus guilty. We may murmur about it from time to time, um, but the murmuring never removes the guilt. We also may blame our environment, like Adam and Eve, but our environment does not make us sin, and nor does blame shifting remove the guilt, right? Adam's first response, the woman you gave me, he blamed her. Kill the lizard goes all the way back to Genesis 3. And Eve says, well, the serpent, blaming your environment, blame shifting, trying to remove guilt that way, giving away your guilt in those terms. So in other words, all that to say, thus saith the Lord comes long before what you think or what you feel. Now, due to the comprehensive nature of life in God's world, God saw fit to ensure that all of our rebellion receives due punishment. Okay? And so God doesn't just let people go, that sort of thing. And the one powerful way that God has chosen to ensure that our sin-breaking and our law-breaking and all of our transgression is punished is by administering guilt to all of those who have intruded on his holiness. Guilt means that God, through the instrument of his law word, taps you on the shoulders and he says to you, enough already. That is what guilt is. When God's law taps you on the shoulders and says, enough already. See, it's a leash to keep us from going headlong into further sin and debauchery. I think it's just come to mind, Matt, some of, your, some of your videos there in Alexandria and then in, in, um, in D.C. Um, it's, you look at the debauchery and you're tempted to think, man, this is so bad, but it could be so worse, too. Yeah. <laughs> so guilt, there is some, it's a leash. It's a leash. The comprehensive nature of guilt means that the entirety of our being is at risk now of emotional instability. Emotional instability. Guilt makes you emotionally unstable. Um, Objective guilt, right, breaking the law of God, results in subjective feelings of guilt. Real covenantal violation results in emotional volatility. If, If you are breaking the law of God and sinning, in even the smallest ways you can think of, you have incurred guilt. You have incurred um, the potential for emotional volatility in your life. And I think that's a gift from God. The whole reason guilt exists is to move someone away from it, right? Um, True guilt, as opposed to false guilt, we'll get into that in a minute, is a self-correcting feature of God's grace. Guilt is a grace whose intentions are pure. Guilt is designed to help you get away from it. 
Now, <clears throat> fallen man, we know, is a guilt-ridden man. He's a guilt-stricken man. And there will always be the desire to find ways to deal with this conundrum. Man will search high and low, looking for somewhere to stuff and stash his guilt. He's going to put it somewhere. He has to put it somewhere. Some will choose to ignore their guilt, and then they will pile on the self-condemnation. Others, like Freud, they will divorce guilt from sin and instead notify the world that guilt is only a biological problem. The third and only real option we know is to run to Christ. But now we're getting ahead of ourselves. Freud. Freud believed in the power of self-analysis and what we call psychoanalysis. By dislodging guilt from the clutches of sin, right, because it's a theological thing, and by necessary consequence, he was divorcing it from theology, from God, Freud was able to essentially make guilt what he would call a biological condition. And it's a category then to be manipulated, right? So if you feel guilty because of fornication, or you feel guilty because of adultery, or you feel guilty because of lust, look, that is just an impulse in you. So, you know, try not to think about it much. Or maybe you suffered something from your childhood, which we will reflect on in a couple weeks, by the way, environment. But Freud would suggest that, you know, those feelings, it's not a transgression of the law of God. That guilt you feel, it's just a biological impulse. It's your nerves firing off things. Don't, don't, you know, don't worry too much about it. Of course, Freud had a colleague, Carl Jung, who was... Um, uh, quite familiar with sexual exploits, and there was a whole lot of garbage that came from that. So if guilt can be divorced from covenant, then there is no sanctions then for man to incur. If you can take guilt out of the clutches of sin, there's no sort of repercussions that you have to worry about, right? So man's responsibility to God is thusly loosened. It's explained away. And guilt then is just one of those feelings you have to try to ignore or deal with on different terms. So as a result of all this jockeying about, guilt then becomes an impulse of what Freud called the id, what we would call the sinful flesh. The id for Freud was like the deep emotional desires, um, the sort of uninhibited desire. And then, of course, the id is supposed to be managed by the ego, the mind, and then the superego, the conscience. So Christian theology, we deal with the sinful flesh of man by making him new in Christ. That's the answer for the Christians, right? That's a reversal of the Adamic curse of sin, and now you have the restoration of the whole of man. This is a process of of covenantal restoration and holiness. That is how guilt is dealt with in the Christian world. But Freud, he rejected all of these religious presuppositions, and then he called it the id, ego, and superego, right? And this was simply man trying to manage his impulses. You know, it's sort of the Aristotelian um, man is a is a um, he's a political animal. You're just an animal. You have desires and instincts, just like you know the the deer and just like the the fox. You you, you know Darwinian evolution, right? You're just a product of of impulse. So indulge yourself, right? Go to the clubs. Go indulge yourself in prostitution. Um, you either ignore it or you just indulge yourself and partake of whatever it is you want to, and then, then you can deal with guilt. So basically, embracing the, the biological and what we can call the anthropological nature of guilt, 
Freud presupposed that guilt was just nothing but a chemical reaction to be tamed. Of course, Freud's followers suggest something else. Don't even try to tame it. Just go for it. You have that desire. Obviously, that desire is good. You should do it. That's the idea. However, we have a different way of viewing things. Because man is made in the image of God, man is liable to God, right? He is responsible. He is accountable. And yet man in his sin, he doesn't want to be subordinate to God. He doesn't want to be subordinate to God. So, so he absolutizes his mission. Give away guilt and all of its entanglements at all cost. Don't confess your sin to God. Just play around with your emotions. Play around with your guilt. Find ways to feel better about these things that you want. So the sexual revolution of our day, the, the culture of death and infanticide, the, the insistence on bodily autonomy, all of it is man's attempt at ridding himself of guilt and his accountability to God. So guilt cannot be relegated solely to the mind or it cannot be relegated solely to biology. It cannot be reduced down to mere social constructs and stigmas. Guilt is theology applied to the whole of man. Why do you think they call it a pride parade and why is it a parade? It is a guilt show. See, this means that guilt, <clears throat> though, when we think about it in Christian theology, guilt, guilt doesn't really care about your feelings, right? It doesn't care about your standard of truth. Guilt comes from God via the law of God, and it's entirely unconcerned with regard to what you think or feel in your attempts to try to give it away and deal with it. It's not a biological problem. It's a covenantal problem. And so, you think about it. If the problem is merely external, right? Peer pressure, the stigma of sexual licentiousness, we have to, we'll call it pride, because we, we got to come out and we are very much okay with our actions and our lusts. If the problem is merely external, right, then someone else is to blame. But what happens if, well, if it's solely internal, we should say, then we should escape it like the Greeks. If guilt is just that impulse, then you got to get out of this. You got to get out of this thing. You figure out a way to deal with it that way. But the truth is, we know that the problem is internal and external. It is both. To illustrate, if a man is shot, he feels the pain, correct? Um, no doubt, he feels the pain. But before he feels the pain, it's an objective reality. He's been shot by someone who doesn't care about the law of God. See, see guilty feelings. Think, think, think about it this way. Guilty feelings are downstream from your guilt before God. Because long before guilt is a feeling, it's a covenantal transaction. But it's still a, you know, it's still a guilt-stricken river nonetheless. So if it's possible, though, <clears throat> If it's possible for the mind to be tainted by sin to such a degree as to fall into fallacious reasoning, would it not follow then that our emotions, similarly tainted by sin, we can fall into fallacious feeling? Of course, that's the answer. <clears throat> One of the surest ways that we try to manage and rid ourselves of guilt is by giving it away to false guilt. See, I think, I have a theory, <laughs> misplaced guilt 
might just be the most debilitating problem that Christians can face. I'm talking regenerate, God-fearing, Holy Spirit-filled, trying to fight sin, trying to advance the gospel. Um, you know, that type of person, misplaced guilt might be a huge problem. See, we feel guilty about the things we should not, things that are lawful. And then we don't feel guilty about the things that, you know, we, we um, about the things that we should, things that are actually unlawful. And I think this is because of two ditches. You have the one ditch on the one side of the road, it's licentiousness, and the other side we have Phariseeism, right? Or Judaism, we, or not Judaism, but um, we, might, we might have this law-keeping, law-breaking ditch, and we, we don't know how to manage the thing. The reason we fall into the ditches is because we don't know where the road is, and all of that's because our spiritual windows are foggy. <laughs> See, when we give away our guilt to things like false guilt, we are motivated by those two deadly ditches. See, sometimes we want to be free in areas we are not permitted to be free. And then other times we want to be held captive in ways that we are not permitted to be held captive. See, the underlying commonality in these two ditches on the road to misplaced guilt is the problem of objectivity. We simply don't want to come to grips with the law of God. See, true guilt always pushes us to the gospel for forgiveness. And then it sends us to the law as a corrective measure. Um, false guilt is just you stumbling around in the darkness. You're trying to manage your own impulses on your own. Um, let's get practical. Perhaps you are the type of person that you are guilt-driven in your decision-making and relationships, right? Um, because you want to make everyone happy. So this false guilt leads you to saying yes to everything and no to nothing. And you want people to like you, of course. Everybody wants to be liked. You want people to like you, to think well of you, to respect you, to think highly of you. And so you're basically willing to compromise what you really, really think on something in order to win someone over. You are what James says, uh, what the Bible calls in James 1a, a double-minded man. This person is entirely unstable because she has left the law of God in favor of her own foolishness. Um, the foolishness of an ever-changing standard. With, with, with one person, he or she says this. And then with another person, he or she says something else. His or her guilt then is shifted around instead of dealt with in terms of her relationship with God. Or perhaps you are in an emotionally unstable place right now. So you shut down and you try to think your way out of feeling guilty. And you might be genuinely suffering. We're going to get into this in the last week, by the way. You might be generally, um, genuinely suffering from depression or despondency or melancholy for dozens of reasons. And, and I have to think that Probably that's normal for the Christian. I think far more of us suffer from layers of that despondency than we're probably even willing to admit. So not discounting that, but perhaps, or perhaps instead of aligning yourself with the law of God, you have allowed yourself to have feelings contrary to what the law of God might say. You might retreat and shut down 
and try to give your guilt away in that way. See, both persons are, are giving away their guilt, and, but both persons are doing so in, in different ways. Instead of dealing with yourself in terms of what God would say and what he would ask of you and his word, uh, we like to create our own, our own expectations, our own standards, our own way of, of living, and then we force it on others. Let, let me explain. <clears throat> False guilt is a temptation for a reason. False guilt is a temptation because the natural man does not want to come to terms with the reality of being accountable to God. It's easier for you to feel bad about something you've created than feel bad about something God has said. It's easier to feel guilty about the wrong things because the wrong things we've created out of thin air. You know, a man, we see this all the time, a man could be completely crushed and entirely debilitated because of killing whales in South Africa. But the next day he goes to work and he's a pro-abort and loves the sodomite agenda. There's false guilt. Um, true guilt, though, presupposes true righteousness and true justice. False guilt presupposes false righteousness and false justice. And, and false guilt is much more preferable for us because false righteousness and a false standards that are contained therein are much more manageable on our terms. They're much more manageable. If you want to know which God you are serving, trace your guilt back to the standard of righteousness that you adhere to. Right? There's always a God of the system. There's always that. But false guilt, though, I will say, is what real guilt uses to get you back to God. And false guilt is always much easier because the idol is way more lenient than the Most High God. Now, remember what we've already covered from Romans 3.19. The reason that God shuts the mouth of every person making them guilty before him. The reason that God does that is because God intends to save the world. He intends to save the world and he wants your mouth closed because you can't do it. And, and God doesn't save non-sinners. What did he say in Mark 2? Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy, right? So God is interested. He's in it, interested in removing your guilt. He's interested in freeing us from shame. And he, and he does it all based on the work of Jesus Christ. God wants his elect, his guilty elect, to be freed from that burden. But the only way you get out of that state of covenantal guilt is through covenantal atonement. And we can't do that on our own. And we try. We sing nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And what are we up against in our culture of death? Nothing but the blood of infants. There's a reason for that. Guilt and atonement go together. So we need justification. We need to be, to be declared not guilty. And we need the other declaration that goes with it. We need the declaration of righteous. And so either we are going to run to Christ's atonement in order to be released from our guilt and our false guilt that we set up every day, or we're going to try to remove it in other ways. And one leads to life and the other leads to death. But we have a tremendous problem, don't we? God does count transgressions. God does count them. David says in Psalm 32 um, that a man is blessed when God forgives transgression and covers sin. But how can a man be forgiven when he is guilty? 
And how can God be just and the justifier, right? If God justifies the guilty, wouldn't that make him an unjust judge, letting us off without punishment? That's why you can't go around telling people that God loves them. And that's it. But if God punishes us, and that's all he does, how can our guilt be expunged? He would then no longer be the type of God who can justify. And the answer to this vast problem is, as we know, the cross of Christ. We've already demonstrated that our guilt cannot be assuaged by biological alterations or sexual promiscuity. Um, Freudian thinking is useless. We need something else. We need someone else. Sin can only be dealt with through confession, and confession, which is the foundation of our faith, coupled with Christ's forgiveness, is a covenantal guarantee from God. And here's what I mean. You only have two options. One, we can try and wash ourselves clean, right? What can wash away our sin? Nothing but me. We can try that, and soap doesn't remove guilty stains. That's what Jeremiah 2.22 says. Or two, the other option, we can let the blood of Christ wash us clean and save us from our guiltiness. And option two is the only way to get out of this. See, when we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we, as thinking and feeling, emotional, rational creatures, are brought to restoration. See, in Christ, we're made whole. We're declared to be righteous. We're declared to be not guilty. So justification, this beautiful doctrine, releases us from sin and its deadly consequences of shame and guilt. But that's why I chose the song, And Can It Be?, about the dungeon and the chain. The gospel doesn't loosen your chains of guilt. The gospel destroys them. You are truly and actually free. You don't have to play the guilt giveaway game any longer, right? God is just. He's the justifier. You are now free. But for the unbeliever stuck in guilt, he can only try to move about dragging his chains, pretending like they don't exist. That is what we have happening in our world around us. But in Christ, you don't have the chains because they've been destroyed. But even when there's, those chains have been destroyed, you and I are very, very much likely to want to create new chains to create new chains of false guilt and false shame. See, for the unbeliever, guilt will either erode at his being until he repents or perishes. But for the Christian, guilt, we know guilt's a good thing. If you feel guilty about something, children, that's a grace. It's a grace. Guilt means that the law is at work in your lives. And that our faith and trust in the sufficiency of Christ is at work as well. And when we don't keep the gospel and of the kingdom on the forefront of our thinking, on the forefront of our feeling, we start to find ways to give our guilt away. So we manipulate others. We make them feel bad about something when they shouldn't have to feel bad because it's not a violation of God's law. That's how we handle our guilt. See, instead of dealing with Christ, you know what we do? We'd rather sulk in our own self-pity failing to believe that Christ loves us. Instead of being consumed with the love of God in Christ, we'd rather murmur about and complain about things that they just don't go our way. See, if we won't deal with Christ and the abolition of guilt and shame in our lives, we're going to be more apt and tempted to manufacture an idol to soothe our conscience. An idol less demanding. 
a God that's just a little less harsh. See, rather than doing this, church, I would just implore you to go to Christ. The next time you feel guilty about something, check to see if it's real guilt or false guilt. But either way, go to Christ. Go to the cross where you have died with Him. Go to the tomb where you've been buried with Him. Go to the throne when you've been raised with Him. Go to Him. Give Him your guilt. Confess your sin. Confess your temptation. Give it all to Him. Give Him your sin. And remember this, because we have to repent of failing to believe this, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 So Christ bore your guilt. He bore your shame. Don't you dare try to pick it back up. Don't you dare. Let's pray. <clears throat> um, Father, we know that there's um, so much in your word to, to help us and guide us, and oftentimes we can feel overwhelmed at the thought of trying trying to obey you in every way. It seems like a burden, but it's not. It's not because Christ has loosened that. The law no longer condemns us. We are now free, free to obey you, free to, to live our lives, not with the chains of false guilt and even true guilt, but to live our lives in obedience to, to you, to be free to serve you and your kingdom. Uh, so, Father, I pray that... Um, that we would be challenged, that we would be edified, um, that, this, that this fellowship would continue the work of the kingdom in all of these variety of ways. Um, we just ask and pray that your spirit would um, equip us, convict us, send us, and uh, remind us of the supremacy of Christ, the grace of Christ that we have access to every single moment. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.